Chapter 10, this morning I'll be reading verses 26 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to remember, think back to a time when you needed endurance, whether it was a diet that you were trying to stick to, a conversation you were trying to make it through the end of, or a class, or a task at work, or for me, I think of a, the first time I signed up for to run in a race. And my wife had done many of those prior. She'd Marathons, half marathons, 5Ks, 10Ks. I had never run a race, and she persuaded me to sign up and do a 5K together with her. And if you were to look at my results from that race, rather than seeing a time next to my name, you would see the letters D N F. Did not finish. Okay. Now, the problem was, I was running it with my wife, and when we got about halfway through, we were hungry. It was a 5K. I mean, come on, three miles. But we were hungry and tired, and we knew that if we, instead of running the course marked out for us, if we just turned that direction and walked a mile or two, there was this restaurant that we really liked. <laughs> and I had no problem making that turn and not finishing the race. I lacked endurance. Ironically, I probably walked farther to the restaurant than I needed to run the rest of the race, but that's another issue. You know, not finishing, not having endurance, maybe is not a big deal when we're talking about something not important, like a little charity race or something like that. But if we were talking about a race for your life, where you were fleeing danger and trying to get to safety, and it didn't require you to have the fastest time or to beat other people, you just had to stay on the path and make it to the end there's a real consequence for not finishing that kind of a race. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying when in verse 36 he says, you have need of endurance. 
Because though we believe and we are convinced from Scripture that no true child of God can ever lose her salvation, being a child of God is not simply a matter of say a prayer and you're in, and it doesn't matter what you do after that. No, the author of Hebrews has already told us earlier in chapter 3, we have come to share in Christ, that is, we've come to be a child of God, we have come to receive salvation, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Those who are truly children of God will endure until the end, because as he promises us, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. But enduring, enduring is not easy. We get bored. We get distracted. We get weak. We get confused or doubtful. We get enticed. And for dozens of other reasons, it's not easy for us to persevere in the path that we've been called to walk in following Jesus. And so in Scripture, we have both warnings and promises Warnings for those who do not endure. And if you are uh, not commonly a part of our church, I want you to know and understand this is not one of those places where every Sunday you show up and the preacher gets up front and talks about hell. But when Scripture talks about it, we don't avoid it or ignore it. We take it very seriously because God graciously warns people of the consequences of not enduring. And so we have warnings for those who don't endure, but we also have warnings to God's people about what we should expect as we seek to endure. But we also have the promise. We read promises of what await us if we do endure. And so let's look at those different warnings and promises this morning. First, the warning that judgment awaits those who don't endure. Judgment awaits those who don't endure. We're talking about a specific group of people here. You know, if you've been with us as we've gone through Hebrews, you know that, that uh, the author is addressing a very specific group of people. It's uh, in, in about the 60s, not the 1960s, but the 060s, the, the sixth decade after Christ was born, the very early generation after Christ's death and resurrection. And many of these people are converts from Judaism, to followers of Jesus. And yet, because of that, they are being cast out of the synagogues and cast out of their Jewish communities, and they're losing their jobs, and they're losing their property, and now they no longer have the protection of the Roman government, and so they're being persecuted in many different ways. And and in order to make things easier, in order to flee and avoid the persecution and the trouble and the difficulty, there are, many of them are going back to the Judaism that they had left to begin with. They're saying, okay, no, I no longer believe in Jesus. Now I am what I once was. And in doing so, they receive safety and protection and restoration of what they've lost. And to such people, the author warns them in verses 26 and 27. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Let's be clear, we're, we're not talking about the sincere Christian who still at times fails to live up to God's holy standard. The one who loves God but still fails and, and at times disobeys. That, that's not who's in view here. That would disqualify all of us as we confessed already this morning in our reading of the law. No, that phrase, go on sinning deliberately, is key. It points to the, the direction of your heart. Is your heart 
oriented towards obedience? Or is your heart oriented towards doing things your own way? Is God's word law and instruction and life to you? Or is God's word a collection of wisdom and uh, suggestions and good counsel? There's really no middle ground, to be honest. It's not like you can either obey God, you can hate God, or you can just kind of be in between. You can be indifferent to God. You know, I'm, I'm okay with God, but I'm not that into Him, really. I don't mind if He shows up, but I'm not going out with Him. You know, those who respond to the gospel with submission and obedience are the followers of God. The only other category we see in Scripture are His adversaries, His enemies. And there's no middle ground. These very verses call such people his adversaries, his opponents, his enemies. Jesus himself put it this way in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What he's saying there is that it doesn't matter what you've done the mercy and grace of God can cover it and you can be forgiven. However, if you reject the mercy and grace of God, if you refuse to come to Him through Jesus Christ, there's no other avenue of forgiveness. There's no way to be forgiven. And so when you have rejected that, you've become His enemy. And the reason for that boils down to this question. Do you believe that Jesus is who He claims to be? That He is Creator and Savior? And do you live consistent with that if you are not building the kingdom of god then you are building a rival kingdom that he will oppose and eventually destroy verse 29 describes such people in this way as one who has trampled underfoot the son of god and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace such a person is calling jesus a liar Rejecting him and his authority and his salvation, and that's not something that God will take lightly. The author of Hebrews makes that point in verse 28 and 29. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that's the case, how much more serious of a punishment will be deserved by, the, by someone who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? In talking about the law of Moses, he's, he's making a reference to that part of the law that, that specifies capital punishment for idolatry. If someone has left the true God and worships another God, they are under the sentence of death in the community of God's people. How much more if someone rejects God in human form? If God has come to your door and you say, no, you are not welcome here. That's an insult to God. That tramples Him underfoot. That rejects the spirit of grace and says, I don't need that grace. But is He not a God of mercy? Is He not... A God who forgives. Does He not show grace? Absolutely He does. The, the heart of God beats with grace and mercy. But that is not all that He is. And, and too often we, we think of God and we only envision and, and, and picture one aspect of His character and His, His personality to the exclusion of other aspects that He has revealed just as clearly. It's, it's like, you know, many of us have done this before. You, you're familiar with somebody in one context. Maybe you see them at work 
And at work, he's a, he's a go-getter, he's a no-nonsense kind of guy, he's harsh, he, he follows all the rules, he's strict with everybody, he's got no time for fun, and you just picture that this guy, when he goes home, he is just a killjoy, he's no fun. And then you see him, you know, you run into him at the park when he's with his family and he's laughing and he's playing with his kids and he's rolling around in the dirt and he's so fun and he's being silly. It's the same person. You've just only taken one facet of their life and made it all of them. Or that mother that you see nurturing and caring for her infant baby and you can't imagine that she also goes out and participates in a roller derby and is knocking people left and right with, with no mercy. You know, we can take one aspect of God and think all He is is a God of grace and mercy and love. But, but our expectations of God need to come from what He has told us to expect. And He has not only told us that He is a God of grace and forgiveness and mercy, He is also a God who judges Verses 30 through 34. We know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Unless we think this is just an Old Testament portrayal, the same God who says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle, I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That same God is the one who in verse 27 says that his enemies can expect a fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. We speak of, of hell and the judgment of God, not because God has failed to be merciful and gracious, just because God judges his enemies does not mean that he is not loving. Because in love, he has made a way for his enemies to be saved. In love, he has made a path for his enemies to be reconciled. And so long as they avail themselves of that path of mercy, then they will not be punished. In Romans 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. The death of Jesus is the way whereby His enemies receive His mercy. And yet, if anyone rejects that path, if anyone says, I expect God to be merciful to me, but I won't receive His mercy through Jesus the way He has said it must come, then for such a person, verse 26 says, there, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins. To the original audience of first century Jewish converts, the warning was this. If you think you can go back to the temple and the sacrificial system and that that will satisfy God and remove your sins while you reject Jesus, then you are deeply and fatally mistaken. But the same warning applies to 21st century Americans today. If you think that you can reject Jesus, but God won't mind because you're still a good person, if you think you can be spiritual, but not approach God through Jesus Christ. If you think that God is okay with you because you have good intentions, even if you aren't worried about the details of what He tells you to do, then there is no sacrifice for your sin. There is no religious activity, no moral code, no spiritual feeling that will remove your sin in the sight of God. Only Jesus can do that. And so to those who do not endure, 
Those who do not continue in following Jesus, who pursue another path, who give up, who turn to a life of sin or a rejection of their Savior. There is nothing, no sacrifice, nothing that can be done to satisfy the judge of all. And for your own sake, God warns you. The warnings of God, the warnings of judgment and of fire are loving, consistent, clear warnings, not because God delights in punishing, but because He wants to spare it. He wants to spare you from it, and He warns you and calls you away from it. Judgment awaits those who don't endure. But in case that isn't cheery enough for you, the next set of verses go on to describe what to expect if you are seeking to endure. And it's not the most motivating of speeches, I have to admit, because it shows us that difficulty awaits those who seek to endure. Judgment awaits those who don't endure, but if you seek to endure, you should expect and anticipate difficulty. Verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is after you had heard and responded to the gospel, you endured hard struggle with sufferings. We've been seeing each week as we've looked at Hebrews how the original audience of this letter were suffering for their faith. They were undergoing uh, hardship that you and I cannot personally understand and have not personally experienced. Now, we're not talking about the normal sufferings of human life, and I want to make a distinction here. There are pain and difficulties and trials and sufferings that are common to all people. Christians and non-Christians get cancer. Christians and non-Christians lose their jobs, lose loved ones, feel lonely, wreck their cars, get betrayed by friends. These things happen regardless of our relationship to God. That's not what we're talking about here. And we're not talking about minor inconveniences. Yeah, I can't find a radio station that plays the Christian music I like. I am suffering so much. You know. Oh, I have to listen to my coworkers talk about all the horrible things they did over the weekend. I'm really suffering. Okay, those are maybe inconvenient, frustrating, but that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is genuine, real suffering. Verses 33 and 34. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. I think of a friend of mine in, in China who was uh, at one, one day he showed up in class and he's in a classroom with 150 other students and his teacher says, is anybody in this class a Christian? And my friend was like, stand up. And he had to stand up and she just began to mock him and told his classmates, the, the, uh, the rest of you should do this to him until he changes his mind. Publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Not speaking here of you know, hardened criminals who had done violent things and, and were in jail. Here it's talking about other believers who had been imprisoned because of the simple fact that they followed Jesus having compassion on them, and joyfully accepting the plundering of your own property. This is what we're told to expect if we endure faithfully, if we obey Christ without wavering. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says that everyone, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
We should not be surprised when it happens. First Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The Bible says we should not be surprised when people treat Christians poorly, when people are rude to us for our faith, when people deny us access to things because of our faith, and when it gets worse, when we start to see in the news about being persecuted in Western nations, in English-speaking countries, in North America, people being persecuted, imprisoned, denied their rights for their faith. We should not be surprised as if something strange were happening. The strange thing is when it doesn't happen. That should be the strange thing. Because those who do not follow Christ are enemies of His kingdom. And when God's word and His ways come into conflict with what the world values and believes, those who seek to be faithful to God, those who seek to endure, should expect difficulty. Jesus tells us that this this has always been the case in Matthew 5. In the midst of the Beatitudes... He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see what Jesus is saying? That those who faithfully follow and proclaim Jesus throughout history have been persecuted. In fact, it should maybe cause us to be curious when that's not happening to us. They also treated Jesus in the same way. And he said, if they've treated me in this way, how are they going to treat you? They've treated your master this way. How are they going to treat his servants? The people of God in the Old Testament and the New. First century and 21st century find that faithfulness to God is not something the world will accept. Now, in America and in the West in general, we have lived in exceptional times where the influence of the gospel has made a faithful Christian life something that is commendable and admired, and yet that time is leaving us now. In fact, it's almost gone. And I worry that our hearts are not ready for the change that's coming upon our culture. The strategy of the church for too long has been to be popular, to gain converts through popularity, which comes at the cost at times of faithfulness, changing the message of the gospel to be less offensive and more inviting, uh, looking like the culture so the world will feel comfortable around us. But the goal of the Christian is not to be popular. The goal of the Christian is to be faithful. And when we are faithful, We can expect difficulty. The audience of Hebrews experienced public shame, financial loss, even legal consequences because they endured in following Jesus. Jesus himself describes it in a parable. He describes the soils, four soils, and a farmer planting seed on the four soils. And and four different types of soil have four different results. One produces nothing. Another rocky soil produces a brief crop that then dies. And uh, only one of the soils ends up producing a crop that bears fruit, which is the equivalent of true salvation. 
And when asked to interpret and explain the parable, Jesus says, well, the seed is the word of God, and the, the soils are the different hearts that receive the word of God. And when speaking of the rocky soil, this is how he describes it, the ones sown on rocky ground, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. May it not be so for us. These with no root fail, but how do we endure amidst difficulty? You're going to hear in our benediction later in the service, but I'm going to give it to you now as well in 1 Peter 5. Here's how we endure. Here's how we stay rooted. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore you. God Himself will confirm you. God himself will strengthen you. God himself will establish you. Think of who's saying that. Think of Peter. Think of Peter who when challenged and persecuted and facing difficulty, what did he do? He copped out. He denied Christ. He was as if he had no root, but what happened? Christ restored him. Christ established him. Christ strengthened him and allowed him to endure. Child of God, you can and you will persevere through the difficulties and trials because God himself makes you endure. The third thing we see after the two warnings is the promise, the promise that reward awaits those who endure. If God is the one who makes us endure, then our reward is a reward of grace. It is given to us, but it is a reward nevertheless. Verses 35 through 36, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The Christian is not all about suffering just for the sake of suffering. We don't get a kick out of hurting and being miserable. We shouldn't. I hope you don't. We're not called to suffer because suffering itself is pleasant. We're called to suffer because there's something better afterwards. It's like when you go to a, an amusement park or a theme park. You know, we take our kids and sometimes you'll see like these long lines. And I love now, you know, when I was little, they didn't do this, but you know, they'll tell you how long the line is. You know, from this point, 60 minute wait. From this point, 120 minute wait. You know, and sometimes we'd be there with our kids and I'm looking at what the ride's supposed to be. And I'm looking at that wait time and our kids are wanting to get in line. And, and there's times we'll just say, it's not going to be worth it. It's not worth 90 minutes of standing in line. We're not going to do it. But sometimes you know what that ride's going to be, and you know it's going to be worth it. And so we endure it. We stand in line, and we wait, 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 because we trust that it's worth the wait. And likewise, as Christians, we don't endure suffering and trouble and difficulty unless we know and believe it's actually going to be worth it at the end. So verse 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Followers of Jesus don't endure suffering because they don't want to be happy. We endure suffering because we want a greater reward. 
Verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Sure, take my stuff away because I'm following Christ. That just means that I am more securely following in my Savior's footsteps and can expect a reward. The author of Hebrews, a few verses later, is in chapter 11 going to talk about one who faced a similar choice. Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the palace in the household, he chose in rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's not that living in the palace was uncomfortable or miserable. It was enjoyable. It was easy. It was good. But it was fleeting and it paled in comparison to what he would expect in identifying with the people of God. So he considered the reproach of Christ of, of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. It's not that we want to suffer. It's not that we're allergic to pleasure. We actually want a bigger and better reward. Have I ever shared with you about the, uh, the Stanford marshmallow experiment of 1972? I probably have at some point because I love this, this experiment that was done. 1972, uh, scientists, psychologists in Stanford gathered in large numbers of children and put them one at a time into a room. And in that room was a table, and on that table was a marshmallow. And they said, you can have that marshmallow if you want. Nobody's going to stop you. You won't get in any trouble. It's your marshmallow. But I'm going to leave the room, and if you can wait 15 minutes and not touch that marshmallow, I will bring you another marshmallow and you can have two marshmallows. And as soon as they walked out of the room, there were kids who just grabbed that marshmallow and ate it up. But there were other kids who tapped their toes and shake their hands. And, and literally, I mean, it's fun to read the descriptions, cover their eyes and turn around to not look at the marshmallow because they wanted to wait because they knew there was something better if they could just wait and what was really interesting is they tracked these kids over, over the years and found that those who waited and got their two marshmallows did better in every area of life because they learned how to wait for their reward. Likewise, people of God, we are called to wait for a better reward. But waiting's not easy. And so verse 37 and 38, we read this, yet a little while, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He's quoting the prophet Habakkuk, which our, one of our men's studies looked at recently and one of our women's studies is looking at right now. So I know a lot of you are in Habakkuk right now. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk was struggling to understand why God was, was not showing up to punish sin and bring judgment. Evil seemed to be winning the game. And God said, it's going to end soon. And in the meantime, my people will live by faith. Living by faith is an amazing and essential skill for the Christian. 2 Corinthians 4, we sang about this morning, our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. He goes on to explain that more in 2 Corinthians 5 as we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is not contrasted with doubt. Faith is not contrasted with, uh, with science. Faith is contrasted with sight. 
It reminds me of all the times I've been in a foreign country or the times I've been the local hosting someone from another country. Have you ever been in another country where you don't know the language, you don't know the geography, you don't know the customs and the culture, and you are fully 100% dependent on someone else to tell you everything that's happening and everything you need to do and how much money you need to pull out to pay for this and what you should and should not say and where you should and should not walk and everything. You are living by faith in the one who knows what's going on taking their word and their interpretation of reality. That's what we're called to do. When we live by faith, we are choosing to follow the reality that God has described. He has said, this is what's good. This is how you live. This is how you speak. This is what's worth your time. Which means that some of our choices aren't going to make sense. When we live by faith, we're choosing to believe God's description of reality And sometimes our choices won't make sense to people who don't believe that God's word is true. But verse 39 says the result of that is that we are not of those who shrink back, who who don't listen to that word that tells us what's real, that word that tells us how to live as we endure. That's shrinking back. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and who therefore preserve their souls. If you have ever been on a road trip with a child, you've heard those four words. Are we there yet? It's annoying, but it is so understandable, is it not? They're being asked to endure, and they just want to know when's it going to be over. My kids don't ask, are we there yet? They ask, how many more minutes? Because they can see the clock, and they can do math. They want to tell me how many more minutes. What's the GPS say? How many more minutes are left? And we say things like, be patient. Or, well, we're closer now than we were 30 seconds ago when you asked. Or, we're going to be there soon. Or what my wife likes to do is try to distract. Like, well, what do you think we're going to eat when we get there? What do you think we're going to do? What's the weather going to be like? Just start thinking about what it's going to be like when we get there. Because enduring isn't fun. We weren't made to endure. We weren't made for life in a fallen world. We were made for life in God's perfect kingdom. And so naturally, rightly, understandably, we want to hurry up the process. Are we there yet? And there's nothing wrong with that. So long as our impatience and our frustration does not stop us from enduring and going forward. Because it's not a question of when. It's a question of when. Not a question of if he returns. If the judge comes to put things right. It's when. So for those who no longer endure, who leave the path of faithfulness and do not serve the God whose coming is soon and will not delay, His arrival will not be something they look forward to. It will be a day of judgment from which they do not recover. But for those who endure, for those who persevere even in the midst of difficulty and trial and struggle, they can rejoice at the coming of the judge of all. Because we're going to sing in a minute a song that, that first attracted me because I, the title seems like such cognitive dissonance. Oh, quickly come, dread judge of all. Do we really want the judge to come near? Yes, we do. Because our judgment has been already carried out in Christ. And therefore, when the judge appears, he comes not to judge us. But if we have endured and held fast to Christ, 
The judge comes to make things right. Shadows from the truth will fall when he appears. That's worth looking forward to. Our reward awaits us on the day when our judge returns, and he is coming soon, and he will not delay. Let us pray in faith that we will endure until that day. Heavenly Father, dread judge of all, we thank you that we do not need to dread your appearance because Christ has borne our judgment. We pray instead that we will endure faithfully until your appearing. Give us strength to face each day. Prepare our hearts and our wills for whatever trials are before your people. May we be faithful. May we be found faithful because you have made us faithful. We cannot do it on our own strength. We are not worthy in and of ourselves. But by your grace, your people are made strong, steadfast, and faithful and can await and look forward to your return. And until that day, we pray in our Savior's name. Amen.